Hello and welcome back to Speedrun, the fast talking video game podcast where we talk about pretty much anything weird and retro that interests us. I, as always, am Jamie. I'm Jazzy and you did the intro right again. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I've, I've been real consistent with it. I've actually been remembering it. But today we have a very special guest, uh, someone we've actually talked about a few episodes back about really wanting to have on the show to talk Dreamcast, and that is the one and only Adam Korlick from Figure It Out Productions. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. You kind of set me up with, like, that's a high bar. You got to lower the expectations for the viewers. They got to listen and be like, oh, this is, like, mediocrity. Go into it with mediocre expectations, guys. I'm telling you, you don't go into it being like, oh, there's this guy, the one and... No, no, no. That's way too nice. Thank you. No, absolutely. Um, For the uninitiated, uh, Adam Korlick has been on YouTube for a a long number of years and has done some really uh, incredible videos. Um, He does a series called Playload. He does a bunch of retro console repair guides, uh, generational recaps. He was on Game Society Pimps. You've likely seen or heard him before in some shape or form if you're at all in the retro community. Yeah, I'm I'm geriatric, dude. I've been around. <laughs> like I've been I'm a YouTube dinosaur. I've been on YouTube for twelve years. Like there are now years. I'm getting to a point where there are more and more people who watch the channel who are younger than the channel. And Oh my I'm, god. I know. It's awful mm-hmm. when you hear that. I mean, one of my all time worst moments, it should have been a great moment, but was one of my worst moments, is I met Scott the Waz and I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. But he was like, oh, dude, I grew up watching you. And I was like, all right. And then later find out like who he is. I'm like, so this dude grew up watching me. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Anyways, sorry. So my point is I'm old. (laughs) But, but, you know, you you provide a lot of valuable resources. You know, I think it's fair to say that if it weren't for you uh, teaching the world about the Yak You Can special. Hey, I'm happy uh, to do it. Everybody needed to know about it. It's Jazzy. Have I told you about the Yakuken special for Sega Saturn? Please give me the tea. Uh, it would be fair to say it's just it's just strip rock paper scissors. Yeah, that's all it really is. It's a it's literally rock paper scissors. Um, and when you win, you see these like Japanese girls like dancing, and when you win, they lose an article of clothing, and when you lose, they just keep the same clip going until you eventually lose because the game itself cheats. And I felt the need to make a video about this game and show the world that this exists. And there's a, a follow-up to that. I now own that game on the 3DO as well. So, you know. Oh, my legit. God. Too oh, legit to quit. Yeah. On the 3DO? Mm-hmm. Why? Because I was in why Japan not? and I saw it and I was like, why not? Exactly. There you go. That sounds way too similar to a fairly heated night of Scrabble at a convention. <laughs> Jesus Christ, strip rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, I, apparently so, that's what that actually, I didn't know it was a, a cultural term. I went, when I, one of the times I was in Japan, I, I mentioned it to a friend of mine. He's like, oh yeah, no, that's, a Yak Yukin is, is that. It's, it's like basically that game with uh, stripper context. I was like, oh, oh, they made a video game out of that. Okay, all right. So I, I'm I've definitely not Googling today. that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but but Adam, one of the things that you're best known for is you have 
not just a complete Dreamcast collection, but one of the most incredible collections of Dreamcast-related merch that I've mm -hmm. ever seen. Thank you. It's weird that you can be known for just owning crap, but yes. Uh, you know, yeah, because <laughs> uh, you have every uh, every game from all regions? Uh, yeah, uh, okay, so basically how that worked was I got the entire American set, which is 248 games, plus a couple of like oddities, like the Shenmue Limited Edition, the Sonic Adventure Limited Edition. Uh, and then after mm -hmm. that, I focused on all the European games that we never got in North America, because they'll always have an English option, with the exception of uh, one game, which is Taxi 2 Les Jeux, uh, which was a French-only game. Not to be confused with Crazy Taxi. So that's like, off the top of my head, it's like two, it's like 32 additional titles, 31, something like that. Uh, and then after that, I went for every single Japanese game that never came out in North America or came out in Europe, with, again, a handful of exceptions where it was something special, like a, a Shenmue or a Sonic Adventure, where I was like, oh, okay, I kind of want to own multiple versions. And that is, mm -hmm. uh, I want to say, an additional like 300, 400 games, something like that. Uh, no, it must be more than that, because the entire... Yeah, it's probably around, like, 400-ish. Yeah, because the entire set, plus... And I'm sure we're going to talk about it at some point, all the, the newer physical indies, if you combine all that, you're you're just south of about 800 original Dreamcast titles. Jeezum. Yeah. yeah. That, that's incredible. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start the timer, but so when you did that, how... When, because you've had that... I'm not counting homebrew releases, uh, of course, but that complete set for how many years now, would you say? Uh, I think I finished it in 2008. So, again, like older than the channel. So, yeah, that would have mm -hmm. been 13 years ago. Wow, we're old. And, and so what, what exactly, what was that process like at the time? And uh, I know many people since then uh, have tried to, to replicate getting a Dreamcast uh, collection, whether it's complete North American or complete worldwide. And how do you think that's changed over the past uh, decade? Yeah, sure. So, okay, um, at the time, I really kind of kicked myself into high gear in like 2006, 2007. Um, I'm not, I don't entirely remember what motivated it other than just like Sega's never making another console and I just want to do this. Um, I was in a mm -hmm. you know the right place where I was just kind of being dumb. I was you know just in college and I was just like you know I, I should just I've got some excess money here from you know working and I want to do something stupid with it while I'm that age. So I was like okay I'm gonna go out and buy these games. And at the time, Dreamcast stuff was not common. It never was, but it was extremely worthless. Like if you could find it, nobody cared about it. Uh, and that would extend to things like, you know, online retailers as well. Like you could find, you know, Project Justice, which is now a very expensive Dreamcast game for like 10 bucks because people are like, I, nobody wants this stuff. Um, there was a phase where Toys R Us, uh, rest in peace in the U.S. anyway, uh, they were hanging on to their Dreamcast inventory as late as when they went out of business only a couple of years ago. Uh, they were just it was there forever so you could go in and buy like space channel 5 for five bucks And it was just still there because yeah, they couldn't get rid of it. Nobody wanted it um, So I was like, you know what? Why not? So I was just like gobbling up all these games and as I was getting closer to it You know combined with the games I had had when the console was relevant I was like, you know what? I could probably do this I could probably pull off a full North American set was as far as I was gonna go and then once I did that, I was like, let's let's see what how many European exclusives there are for the same reason I stated before, which is 
the English language option is very awesome. And to find out there was only 32 of them, and I already had, you know, I think at that point I had Shenmue 2, and I had, uh, I think, Res. And so I was just like, this wouldn't be that bad, so I tracked them down. The Japanese stuff was the hard part, because, you know, at the time, I wasn't going to Japan. So mm -hmm. I uh, I just looked on, you know, websites, and I think it was Play Asia that was the big hit there, because they had tons of it, and, you know, I contacted them, and I was like, you know, can I do, like, a big mass shipping thing? And they were like, yeah, whatever, we don't care. Because, again, to them, it was just junk. And the same with right. a, the handful of eBay lots that I think I did at the time, which was I would contact the seller, because they would have, like, the one game I needed, but they would also have just a few other, you know, just commons with it. And I would say, can you just, you know, hang on, let me group all this together and just you know get a bigger order together and they would do it and it, it really wasn't that hard the hardest part back then was just honestly was just figuring out all the Japanese releases that existed um, and the majority of them were easy enough to track down there was only a handful where it was super tricky um, and we can get into that later if you want but uh, to, to evolve into the next question you asked about what how it's changed the funniest part about that is I had no idea because once I was done I had totally tuned out of it and then at some point I think I made a video talking about oh you know this game doesn't cost that much blah 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 because I was still operating on like decade old information and someone was like are you insane like this is what has happened and I looked it up I'm like wow how did Mars Matrix go to like $200 a copy I remember this you could Jeez. not get you could not get rid of these at Toys R Us. Like they had a five dollar bin full of them. Nobody would take them. And I'm like, when did that happen? So I, I'm not as attuned to what the current ecosystem is, other than to say that it's it's much more expensive than it was when I did it. No, absolutely. Because I remember, funny enough, after stumbling across your channel, probably 2013, I want to say. I remember even then I was able to pick up a Dreamcast with the original Shenmue for I think forty bucks total from a, mm -hmm. a game store in Texas. Yeah, that's about when, the price here in Ohio that it was going for. Yeah. Yeah, that and was about that, average. But that's just that that's not possible nowadays. Not unless you just find someone who's like having an estate sale or something, you know, where they just don't know what they even have. Uh, you're not even likely to get lucky at a goodwill with that type of thing anymore. To be fair, I think like I think it'd be fair to say for game collect would be fair to say for game collecting in general that thrift stores ain't what they used to be. Not even close. The secret is too out now. Like everybody knows to go do that. Um, we do have to factor in that we are in the middle of a, a pandemic, and that has really messed up that bubble, if you will, of pricing. I do think that oh, there's yeah. going to be a big drop as soon as let's say everything quote unquote goes back to normal. But even then, you're not getting back down to like five dollar Dreamcast anymore. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, one of the things that helped drive up prices for like very specific games, like Fantasy Star, for example, that um, innovations like the Dream Pie? Do you think that really kind of like kicked it into high gear again with uh, servers like uh, Shitstack that are servicing? Uh, older games like Fantasy Star or anything like that, or like any mods that are like revitalizing the scene? See, that's a very good and very specific question tailored to that game. And you could be absolutely right about it. I'm not much of a Fantasy Star guy. But uh, in general, what happens with retro gaming is, uh, a, let's say a console comes out, it has its time in the sun, and then it stops. After that happens, 
basically the inventory becomes worthless and that's how everybody kind of starts purging it because they're preparing for the next generation of stuff and so on and you usually get about two or three generation cycles of that before the generation that had those as kids become old enough that they now have income, they have desire to basically rebuy their childhood, and that's what shoots the prices back up. Um, and then what eventually happens is that same group of kids is now like, okay, I had my phone, I rebought my childhood, but now I gotta get a house, I gotta get, I have a kid coming, I gotta get rid of all this stuff, and then you have a big drop. And it never really comes back from that point. Uh, case in point would be something like the Atari 2600. Like, it had its time, it became worthless, it became valuable again, then it became worthless. And we're at the phase now where basically Super Nintendo, if you remember just a few years ago, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, NES, that's what everyone was buying. Because those kids, uh, the mid-80s kids, were doing that. And now they've all like, yeah, I'm getting rid of my collections, I want to buy a house, whatever. We're in that phase now where it's all the 6th gen stuff that's valuable. Namely, Dreamcast and GameCube being at the top. Um, to a lesser extent, PlayStation 2 with very, very specific titles because the PS2 library is so insanely big that people aren't really doing full sets. And then for some reason, original Xbox, like just nobody cares, except me, I care. But nobody really cares about OG Xbox collecting. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. my guess is the pandemic kind of put that on crack. But as soon as this is kind of over, I'm betting you're going to see a fall and then probably a couple years later, a much bigger fall. That's my guess. I definitely noticed uh, that that pattern as well. And I'm thinking about like, because, you know, I'm, right now I'm getting ready to buy a house. And I'm thinking like, yeah, the GameCube is awesome. But really, that mod ship also looks really great right about now. <laughs> Exactly. That's the other and thing that's uh, a factor with this. Uh, I, I'll just finish this real thought, uh, thought quickly and take over. Um, but basically, that's an interesting point. Piracy, how easy it's become, essentially, to like mod a GameCube or a Dreamcast, where people are like, eh, I can kind of cling to my childhood and my nostalgia, but I can get rid of all this stuff, and I don't have to have all these things, and I can make some money off of it and move on with life. That option didn't mm -hmm. necessarily exist uh, for the longest time, but it, but it has been around for at least say the Genesis, the SNES, the NES Master System, and it didn't really kill them. Um, so it's kind of an interesting point. I think honestly, the pandemic is the biggest factor currently. Mm -hmm. The X factor, I should say. Anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, actually, I was going to ask. Going off that, would you because uh, with the pandemic and such, uh, I've noticed, for example, and again, I th I think this could also be in part because people can't go out as much but i know uh during the pandemic like for example uh because you haven't been traveling as much uh play loads have had yeah uh not as massive hauls and them. but would you say that in general would you say the pandemic is causing a shift towards digital media away from physical See, that's an interesting point, and it, I think it would be more on a case-by-case -case basis. Obviously, I do think that, even though I'm all physical, I think digital is obviously the future. It's just kind of inevitable. Um, you know, to, to deny that would be like the guy who owns horses claiming the car will never take over. It's just, it's going to happen. Um, but the pandemic has given people more of an incentive to stay home and do that. But we've also seen at the exact same time everyone is acquiring all of this physical stuff to bring into their homes as well through shipping methods. So in-store purchases are definitely suffering, but the actual acquisition of physical matter 
doesn't seem to be slowing down. If anything, it's on the rise because of everybody being so dependent upon shipping. So that's I think that'll be an interesting, you know, when we have the final stats on that in a couple years to see how that that played out. But if it was solely aiming towards the direction of favoring digital, then we wouldn't have this big retro boom that we're currently dealing with. Absolutely. So so going back into the general Dreamcast collecting talk though, every item in your collection which one was the biggest pain the ass to get a hold of um you know it's are you talking about just dreamcast specifically dreamcast specifically okay uh, whether it's a game or a specific uh model like the i know the the driver the divers 2000 okay. let me let me go over a rare. couple of the random oh, highlights goodness. and then the the answer might surprise you a bit so i have the divers 2000 dreamcast as you just mentioned which was a television dreamcast all built into one only 200 ever made i've got like all these dreamcast development kits is what you know companies like sega or you know third-party developers i think mine actually says idos on it i have a bunch of these things you know that should have been really hard to get um, I have the Hong Kong exclusive knockoff Dreamcast called a Dreamcast with a built-in monitor uh, I have the Resident Evil Claire edition you know only 1800 ever made Dreamcast I have all the games I even have the super rare game called um, Grauen no Torikagu Capital 6 which basically means like the birdcage. Um, only 200 copies of that game were ever produced, and they were only available. Yeah, only only 200 were ever available, and it was only released through Sega's uh, then website called Sega Direct, which would be kind of like at the time Sega's version of Club Nintendo. That game is so rare mm. that even when I went to Sega Fest, Sega themselves brought me to Sega Fest 2019, and they had this big like museum exhibit for the Dreamcast where they had like almost every game up that one they didn't have i have a game that they did not have and Holy even crap. that is not the answer to the question the answer to the question isn't stupid as hell it's a game an indie game for the dreamcast called dream para para which was originally i think it was a konami playstation 2 game and for some reason and some guy in Hong Kong decided to port that game to the Dreamcast and built its own special controller for it. It's the rarest indie game that ever had any sort of official release. And I found some guy, after like five or six years of hunting for this thing, I found a dude in Germany who had it. I didn't even hesitate. I bought it instantly. That was the hardest thing to ever find. That's and what what's that controller like? That's it's, incredible. I, I think I showed it in a video years ago. Um, it's it's this thing where it has like the if I recall correctly, I haven't taken it out in like a decade, but it's got these like four little sensor pods that you uh, kind of put your hands over and then you have to like wave your hands over it, you know, at the corresponding moments in the game. But that game is like you the game absolutely requires the controller. Like it, it won't even boot without it. It'll basically go to a menu that says, like, you don't have the controller and just turn itself off. So it's, like, the most impossible game to pirate because you had to have this one particular controller that was only made by some guy in Hong Kong for a very limited amount of time. So that was, but, by, that was by far the hardest one. Yeah, somebody... Oh, way, you just posted a picture of it there yeah, in the Discord. Yeah, Jazzy and uh, the, our uh, recording via Discord, uh, Jazzy just shared a picture of it in... Um, the the uh call that that we're uh recording over and i like how one of the links is from east starland and uh that you know that's 29 dollars worth of trade credit right there 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that's a fat $29 a trade credit for something there's only one so, of so, 200 so, 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 of. Something tells me that that price is a little low. <laughs> well, see, I, I don't know how many of those were produced. I just know it was a Hong Kong production. But, I mean, that picture mm. is the same one that's been floating around for a while by Mayu. I mean, that. I mean, I'm friends with that guy on Facebook. Like, it's a small community of people who actually have that thing. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I think he's German, too. So he might have actually been like the guy who sold me one, for all I know. Um, I, I'm just saying that that particular release is extraordinarily uncommon. It's not really valuable, because I don't think anybody really knows about it. And that's where you get into like the oddities of collecting. Is it valuable when no one knows it even exists? You know what I mean? Uh, like, everybody right. knows that, you know, something, again, I'm going to cycle back to a game that we've all probably heard of, like uh, Project Justice or uh, Ill Bleed. Like, you know, those are uncommon games, so they're valuable, but we know what they are. Did you ever hear of this thing until I mentioned it? Would you have any idea? Never. That it ex- exactly. No. Would you have any idea it exists? So if you saw one on eBay for like 20 bucks, would you think that that's a good deal? Or would you be like, I don't know what this is and I don't care? Whereas you could be look, you're looking at like the rarest thing that even exists. That's the, uh, that's the, the weird phase you eventually get to with collecting is you find stuff that's so rare no one knows if it's even a real thing. Right, like kind of like with my own consoles, for example, where it's like, you know, something like the the twin Famicom or something is probably worth something, but the rare system I have is the Game Wave, which cost me sixteen dollars sealed. Nice. Is that not yeah. the prototype unit, or is that something else? No. Oh, so for for context, someone on eBay was selling a prototype unit. I got of uh, the Game Wave, which was the only system ever made in Canada. This is off topic, but I'm enjoying chatting with y'all. That system sold for uh, $500, which was out of my range, but I did get info and additional pictures from the guy who had it because, uh, long story short, when he was a kid, apparently his parents actually uh, invested a sum of money into the company who made it, and they were allowed to keep this uh, prototype unit that was sent around to investors. That's pretty neat. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I have an affinity for prototypes. I don't know if you followed my videos enough to know that, but like the Nintendo PlayStation prototype, the Sega Pluto prototype, all that stuff. Oh yeah. It. Well, yeah. if you'd want, if you'd want it sometime, let me know. And I randomly got a, a, a Nokia Engage prototype a couple that's years cool. back. That's cool. I love the Engage. <laughs> I actually. I do too. Yeah, I, that's. That, I'm only one game away from a full set on that thing, actually. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, what, what's the game you're missing? Is it uh, uh, Sega Rally? No, I've had that for years. Uh, Warhammer. I didn't even know it existed. I thought ooh. it was just a prototype. Um, turns out it did get an official release, and it's just rare as hell. Sega Rally is funny because I've since learned that that was rare, um, but because it was uh, exclusive to Australia. And I remember when the N-Gage just collapsed, it was kind of like the same thing with the Dreamcast, where I was just like, you know what, this is kind of bizarre, I'm just going to go pick these up, because N-Gage stuff, they were just purging it from everywhere, and there was only like 45 games or something made. Then I found out Sega Rally came out in Australia, and some guy's like, yeah, eBay, $3, I don't care, and I was like, sure, whatever. Not having any clue would eventually become like Sega Rally, the like holy grail for that platform. I should mention, by the way, the timer just hit zero, but I'm still vibing and chatting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. That happens. I go over time. Anyway, so you feel free to shift into whatever you need to shift into. Yeah. Jazz, what, what should we do from here? Well, before we wrap it up, uh, this Warhammer game for Engage is $170. And 
<laughs> I am I'm a huge Warhammer dork, and I've never heard of this. Just as like a testament to how obscure this and the N-Gage is. The, the N-Gage is underrated, and it has a lot of really cool oddball content. Like, there's an exclusive Elder Scrolls game on that platform. You know, like, there's oh, a yeah. lot of... Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of weird, cool stuff on there, and a lot of it was kind of unportable because of the... And I don't mean unportable in the sense you couldn't walk around with it. I mean, like, it can't be brought to other platforms because it was all designed around that really odd screen they had. Rather than being a 16 by 9 widescreen or even a 4 by 3 full frame, it was, like, a vertical stretched frame. So you just... They would have to do a lot of work, and I just don't think anybody really cared to, to bring mm -hmm. that Honestly, that stuff like, over. for all its issues, some of the games are pretty good. Like, there's this uh, really good racing game i got to to try out on a, a buddy's qd a while back called glimmerati that mm -hmm. i actually ended up really liking yeah it's it's actually a pretty good little platform it just had its obvious flaws but anyway i'm sorry i'll, I'll keep going if you let me so just <laughs> shift in no, this, this has been awesome like it's been really yeah. awesome having you on and just talking collecting and talking dreamcast believe me i could do that all you... day but there's a reason you set these rules for you not for me <laughs> But yeah, no, having you on and being able to talk to the guy that helped me fix my NES back in 2013 is absolutely fantastic. Happy to help. <laughs> Literally, uh, actually, it's funny because you posted your, your new one uh, restoration guide. And you're like, <laughs> yes. and I remember you mentioned like, oh, you know, the, you know, who's going to need a new one restoration guide? I don't know. But uh, actually, like a buddy in uh, a a buddy I'm friends with on Facebook ended up randomly finding one at a value village a while back and it was a, a similar model. So it actually ended up helping him out a bit, just, you know, giving a good clean. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it, there there is always the occasional oddity, but, you know, you'll notice with videos like that. Personally, I find things like cleaning up a new one to be infinitely more interesting than, say, cleaning up a PlayStation 2 because you don't see a new one ever. So it's interesting mm -hmm. to not only get to see it up front, but also to, like, look under the hood and see what's in there and see what we can do with this. I find that fascinating. But views don't lie. You'll get like 4,000 views on a video like that. Whereas right. like PlayStation 2, I think cleaning a PS2, I did both the fat model and the slim model. And that's literally like the second and third highest viewed videos on my channel. Uh, the first one has like one and a half million views because everybody bought a PS2. So they want to know how to clean it. I get that. It's just like to me, that's boring. But, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like, but there's a difference between content that does well and content that that's incredible. You know, you got it's that balance of content that you know will do incredibly well and content that's incredibly fun to make. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although I didn't yeah. enjoy and making the, the new on video because I picked up. I think I mentioned it. I don't know if I did in the video. I like lift up the lid and it like cut my finger, so I was like bleeding for part of the video. <laughs> so oh, that no. wasn't. Fun. Yeah, I was actually. <laughs> I was actually going to ask if you're like okay. Oh yeah, no, that, that, that was that was like what that was in June. That was a while ago. I'm fine. Oh okay. Yeah. Yeah, but like you know, that like that's but still like that's a resource that's out there and that's a resource you know. Views are not that, you know, I love seeing stuff like that because it really is a resource that's out there. And I think it's a resource that's just for, you know, this for, for our community of, of retro collectors and retro enthusiasts. It's a really I really do think it's a fantastic resource that, that, that you've made there. Well, thank you. you know, the funny uh, thing is, I didn't start it to be that way. I just kind of was like, oh, you know. I have I don't even remember what the first one was. I think I just had like a junk console sitting around. And I was like, you know, I gotta clean this thing anyway. Let's just film it. 
I did not think people were going to give a crap. But that's usually how that works. So, before we end off this episode, Adam, where can people find you online? Um, so, my name's Adam Korlick, and you can find me under that name pretty much anywhere. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, Discord, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm all around. Thank you. And, of, co- <laughs> and, uh, of course, seriously, check out all... Check out all of his vids. Uh, Gamerade's oh. great. Playload's awesome. Uh, the the Japan guide you did was actually really great. As oh well. yeah, yeah. I'm happy to have done that one. You know, because uh, I mean, I guess we don't need to go go into that too much. But basically, like, hey, if you ever need to go to Japan and you're like trying to buy stuff, like, trust me, the video's long, but it will help you. It's a great guide, and of course, this podcast was made possible in part by. Podbean. Podbean is a, the platform that hosts this podcast and puts it out on platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can get paid hosting through Podbean. Jazzy, did you know that? I was unaware. I was totally aware. I was totally unaware. Yes, and if you would like some podcast hosting of your own, please do it. We need more great retro podcasts out there. Then go to podbean.com speedrun or use the code speedrun at checkout and, uh, you know, help help us out a little bit. Jamie, did you know that we have a Patreon? We also have a Patreon. Uh, Speedrun is a part of Stuff We Play. You can find us at youtube.com slash stuffweplay or back us on Patreon for early podcast episodes at patreon.com slash stuffweplay. In addition, Jazzy, is there another thing we need to plug as well this episode? Uh, I think that's it. (laughs) I think that's it. You think so? (laughs) And finally, finally something that's that's not us asking for money tend off on. I'm sorry. <laughs> to be fair, though, Jazz, you do a fantastic job. Oh, oh gosh, thank you. But if you have ideas for future episodes, uh, whether it be guest topics or whatnot, then you can email me directly at jamie at stuffweplay.com, jazzy at jazzy at stuffweplay.com, or as of today... We officially have a dedicated speedrun Twitter account instead of just the stuff we play account. You can find that at Podbeans, uh, sorry, at Podcast Speedrun on Twitter. Uh, because yeah, we, we wanted an account that both Jazzy and I could post podcast updates on instead of just posting them on my personal. So yeah. Yeah. So of that, I've been Jamie. I've been Jazzy. And that has been Adam. Yo, what up? I've been me. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you very much for listening. Stay classy, and we'll see you next time. Bye.